In episode 7 of Exploring Astrophysics, I speak with Professor Benedict Diemer, who is a computational astrophysicist at the University of Maryland. He told me about his work looking at dark matter halos and how he is looking at visualizing dark matter in an artistic form. What areas of research are you currently involved in? So I work broadly speaking on the formation of structure in the universe. So this means the transition from a uniform universe after the Big Bang to the structures that we see today, like galaxies, stars, um, and the things that we don't see, like the dark matter halos around those galaxies. So very broadly, that's what I work on. I run computer simulations. Um, so I study this from a numerical perspective rather than observational, for example. Okay. And within this, I work on a few different topics. I work on um, the shapes of dark matter halos. So these are the big balls of dark matter that the galaxies sit in, um, how they come to be, how they evolve, how we can define them, whether they have a boundary, questions like that. Uh, and I'm also interested in how the galaxies form at the centers of these halos. Looking at these dark matter halos, what, what are, how are you trying to observe them? What tools are you using? Yeah, so the dark matter halos cannot be observed directly. That's why we call the dark matter dark. Dark is really just a term that summarizes our ignorance. Um, they do not, the dark matter does not respond to light. So photons do not bounce off the dark matter particles the way they bounce off our normal matter. And that means that we have currently at least no hope of seeing it directly, though people are still trying. The only thing that we can see is the one interaction the dark matter does seem to have, which is the gravitational one. And so we see its effects on the universe gravitationally. And I'm not in the business of trying to observe the dark matter per se, but I do work on um, figuring out ways that the dark matter might leave imprints in things that we can see. So for example, um, we came out with this idea that dark matter halos might have something akin to an edge, basically, like a point where their density drops precipitously. So where they go from sort of medium density to really low density in a relatively um, short sort of in a little radial shell, if you will. And so something like that um, would only happen if there is dark matter. Right? So this is in this case, a, a phenomenon will be specific to dark matter that does not collide with other particles. And then again, um, there are ways that we might be able to see that, for example, because um, the little galaxies that fly around bigger galaxies would also do the same thing. And so you would also be able to see that edge um, in those little galaxies and those so-called satellites. And that has been observed, for example. And so now I think that's actually a very strong indication that there is dark matter. And not that we need to convince anyone, most people are plenty convinced that there is dark matter, but it's still really good to come up with new ways to, to see it and test it. What other methods do you think there are that you can indirectly detect these? Oh, there are many. I would have to think to give you a complete list. So starting from the beginning of the universe, uh, you cannot explain the cosmic microwave background without dark matter. So the, uh, you're probably familiar with this concept, right? That we are getting microwaves from everywhere in the sky. Um, and 
they were sent out about 380,000 years after the Big Bang when the universe cooled down enough for uh, it to become transparent to this kind of radiation. And back then the radiation was a lot more energetic, everything was a lot hotter, and it's just been traveling through an expanding cosmos ever since and kind of stretched out and, and become less energetic. And that's why today we see these microwaves. And that radiation carries a pattern which tells us about the overall and densities to the patchiness of the universe at the time when it was produced. So almost, I mean, 380,000 years is such a short time, cosmically speaking, that it was almost uh, right after the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And so the patterns in that, that patchiness tells us about the kind of stuff that the universe must have been made of at that time. And you can actually not explain that patchiness without dark matter. It's actually a very strong signature. So when people make it sound like we only know about dark matter from observing galaxies, that's, that's not true. Um, we, we know about it from this very large scale cosmological observation. But then as you go down to um, later times and smaller scales, you find it basically everywhere. The, the way it was first noticed was in galaxy clusters and big conglomerations of galaxies um, where um, the galaxies are moving too fast for there not to be any dark matter. By which I mean, um, when you think about galaxies being pulled in by gravity and being flung out by their speed, like uh, a little rock that you would whip around on a string, if they move too fast and there is not enough gravity to hold them in, they will just fly out, they will escape. And so people even in the 1930s realized that um, when you look at the velocities of these galaxies, they are simply too high for there not to be some extra mass holding them in or for gravity to be stronger for some other reason. What properties of dark matter do you have apart from that it doesn't interact with photons and that it interacts with uh, mass? Yeah, I mean, that's the $1 billion question, I guess. <laughs> um, that's the question that we're fundamentally after, the particle nature of dark matter, assuming it is a particle, right? I should always give this caveat. There are some people who work on other theories, maybe such as modified gravity theories or something like that. But assuming that dark matter is a particle, mm -hmm. then you have its mass. How big is it? That's sort of the number one most important thing. Does it have any interaction, any cross-section as it's called with normal matter? And so for example, if you shoot a dark matter particle past an atom in your body, is the chance of them interacting really zero or is it just very, very small? That makes a big difference because if it's very small and we might still hope to detect it one day by building better detectors. If it's really zero, then we're out of luck, right? And so right now the search has been on basically for smaller and smaller cross sections. And we've now gotten to a point where um, I think people are a little um, desperate in the sense that it is uh, seeming less and less likely that this avenue will lead to success. But we have to be careful because this has only been done in a very specific range of mass of the particle. And there is actually a huge imaginable range of masses. The dark matter could be kind of heavier than a proton, like the protons in the atoms in your body, or it could be way, 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 way lighter even than an electron. And we really don't have any indication either way at this point. What does computational tools, and so I understand that's a part of your, your work is using computational tools. So how does that tie in to this? Yeah, so because we cannot observe the dark matter, mm -hmm. 
we need to understand its behavior theoretically. We need to predict what it would be doing if it does in fact exist. I'm just making predictions theoretically that we can then validate against the things that we do see in nature. For example, the speed of galaxies and clusters and so on. Now, it turns out that there is no pen and paper way of doing this that really gets you to the finish line. So many things in physics you can sort of write down approximate at least with some equation, some analytical expression that mathematically describes the outcome. But what dark matter does turns out to be um, way too complex uh, in, in terms of the structures it makes. So when you start with an almost uniform universe where everything's distributed evenly or almost evenly minus these tiny little patches that we see in the cosmic microwave background, what happens is that gravity pulls the denser patches together. And then because they're denser, the gravity gets stronger. And so they pull in more matter and it's kind of this runaway process that is very, very difficult mathematically. The technical term is it's very nonlinear. So small change in the input causes a huge change in the output. And for that reason, um, we need computer simulations. You can imagine them relatively simply. Imagine taking a big cube of virtual particles, like a billion or trillion even of virtual dark matter particles in a computer. You perturb their positions a little bit in the beginning to match these little over and under dense patches. And then you tell your computer, compute gravity. Compute the gravity between all these particles and then move them in the direction where the gravity is pulling them. And that's fundamentally all it is, what's called an n-body simulation, meaning they're n, n being some large number of bodies that only interact via gravity. That's what we mean by dark matter only simulations. And that's still today what we're doing um, to a large extent, though of course the simulations have gotten much bigger and, and better and so on. But it's what they produce is what's called the cosmic web of dark matter and it's this extremely complex shape of filaments and walls and, and halos being these dense spots where the galaxies end up forming. And it's kind of fascinating. People have been running these simulations since the 1980s. So you would think this problem would have been sort of solved at some point, but no, <laughs> we're still finding more and more interesting um, facts about the dark matter. And that's not even including all our normal matter that actually makes the galaxies. So to me, it's kind of wild that we're still working on this 40 years later uh, and still running simulations that are not fundamentally all that different. But we come up with new things like this question of do halos have edges? So do, do you think it's just a matter of time until the simulations can get complex enough to actually start becoming as realistic? Or is, do you think there should be an, another avenue that people should be taking? That's a tough question. So to be clear, so the dark matter only simulations are always a big simplification because we don't include the galaxies or normal matter. So I have to answer your question by saying people have already gone to a much higher level of realism by running big simulations that do have our matter in it. And then everything gets a lot more complicated because our matter does interact in all these complicated ways by pressure, uh, light, heat, or these, these things that we perceive in everyday life. Mm -hmm. In fact, allow us to exist, chemistry, um, stuff like that. And these simulations have gotten very good, but there are still huge simplifications. So for example, you have limited resolutions. For each galaxy, you only have 
maybe a few thousand or million uh, virtual particles in, in quotation marks. So I think there is still a lot of room to improve on our current simulations. I think this field has a bright future still, otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. But um, I think it's also naive to think that we can just rely on computers getting bigger and simulations thus getting bigger to solve our problems. Because there are actually many problems where um, we can already see that we're not gonna get there by just pumping up the size of a simulation. And that has to do with the very big differences in scale in astrophysics. And by scale, I really mean physical length scale. For example, a black hole is absolutely tiny in comparison to the galaxy it lives in. And so in your simulation, it's not just that you need to add a little more resolution to your galaxy and then you're going to sort of correctly get your black hole. No, you would have to simulate a galaxy was an unimaginable number of resolution elements to ever get down to that scale where say the black hole is eating up matter and growing and spewing out stuff, um, which is then important again for your galaxy. And so all we can do right now is accept that fact and say, well, okay, we're clearly never going to get, get down to that level of resolution. And so at the place where that black hole sits in our simulation, we're gonna be putting in some number, some calculation that mimics roughly what a black hole might be doing. And so you do something that's called a subgrid model, meaning it's sort of parameterization of our ignorance. And we put in the kind of physics that we think might be happening, but it's not really accurate. It's not really simulating everything that's going on. And so a big part of this field has been in improving these actual physics understanding um, of these different mechanisms that we then put into the simulation. So I would say that's where the real room for improvement still is. We can do much, much better. But I think we should also be honest and admit that um, we will probably never be able to completely simulate the universe and that's okay. Okay, uh, so I understand you're, you're doing a project called Fabric of the Universe. Could you explain a little bit about that? Yes, um, Fabric of the Universe is an art and science collaboration. Uh, this is not uh, a particularly scientific endeavor in a way. So the goal is not to advance uh, our scientific understanding necessarily. The goal is to explore the connection between art and science. And in this case, the nature of this cosmic web of dark matter that I was talking about. Together with Isaac Fascio, he's a textile specialist at the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, we decided to look at how we could express the cosmic web in what is called three-dimensional weaving. Three-dimensional weaving is a technique where you weave a fabric on a normal weaving loom that would make your t-shirt or jeans or whatever. Um, but you put in a clever pattern that then allows the fabric to unfold in 3D. And Isaac is a specialist in designing these kinds of patterns. And we wanted to not just make a visualization, to be clear, right? So when I say express the cosmic web, we were looking for um, um, shapes or forms of fabric that would capture its essence, that really break it down to the very simplest, um, I don't know, uh, types of, of structures that you would encounter. The idea here is not to, to make some hyper-realistic impression of what happens in the simulation. And so based on this, we've done a few installations where we um, exhibited these woven shapes. Um, but some of the 
data is directly taken from simulation. So we, we do try to have a direct connection to the science and to the, the computer simulations in our works. That's very, very interesting. Um, I never thought that art and science could be so interlinked. And I've looked at some of the photos and it really does look incredible, like being able to visualize the data like that. Well, there are actually quite a lot of people who do art and science. Um, there have been a few really cool collaborations. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to go back to your, to your research with uh, galaxies. And I think you mentioned centers of galaxies. So what, what, are you, um, what are you working on in there? So I actually have not worked on galactic centers myself. Um, I've left that to others. I'm currently interested in the question of do our simulations produce the right amount of gas in these galaxies? So a lot of galaxies is in stars. That's what we can see in the sky. But actually between the stars, there is a ton of gas. It's very thin gas, equivalent to a very, very, like a much better vacuum than we can make on Earth. But then space is big, so it still adds up to being quite a lot of gas. And I think the simulations have gotten very good at producing the correct amounts of starlight. That's partly because that is the first thing that people want to reproduce because it's the easiest thing to measure. But uh, I'm not so convinced yet that the gas in these galaxies is actually right. And we're starting to see that in the real universe. So right now, one thing um, I'm working on together with students is to compare the, uh, what we see in simulations to uh, certain new observations of gas in real galaxies. And that sounds a lot easier than it is because um, it's not just comparing sort of apples to apples from the get-go. Um, there are many things that uh, we cannot really reproduce in the simulation. And so then we have to do calculations and sort of imagine what they would look like in the real universe. And in the observations, you're also never actually observing the thing you want to be observing. You're always observing some proxy for that thing. Um, and so these, these comparisons can get quite complicated. So that, that's very interesting. Your research is incredibly interesting. So I, I wanted to thank you for coming and speaking to me. Yeah. Well, thank you. And it was my pleasure. Yeah. Good luck with your podcast. I think it's really cool you're doing that. Thank you.